Um, good afternoon. I understand we have at least 35 participants on our webinar. We're delighted. David and I are delighted. So many of you would join us. Um, I am a retired probate and family court judge. I served on the bench from 1993 uh, to 2014. I have to stop and remember. It's almost been six years since I've been off. I'm delighted to share uh, my the presenting platform with David Friedman. David is a partner at Viral Law. He will uh, tell you a little bit about himself. Uh, but David also has been co-chair of the BBA Family Law Steering Committee for at least two to three years. I've been on it for five years and he and Carlos Nayot do a wonderful job as co-chairs and I thank them. So David, if you want to say hello and then I'll explain the purpose of our fundamentals separation agreements webinar. Certainly, uh, although you, you uh, used all the good stuff that I was going to use about where sure. I work and what I do. Um, but I've been a family law attorney for 18 years now. Um, and uh, today's program is interesting um, because Judge Ricky and I obviously come from very different perspectives. Um, for much of my career, I've been involved in the drafting and negotiating of this agreement, while Judge Ricky provides uh, a more unique perspective of being the one who ultimately uh, reviews them and determines whether or not they'll be allowed. So hopefully that well-rounded perspective will be helpful to uh, both uh, giving you guys some advice about what's going on and also answering some questions if you have those. Thank you, David. Um, separation agreements are complex. Even with a short childless marriage, separation agreements are complex because they are most contracts that parties enter into are for a one event, a painting contract, a, uh, any type of a contract is a one incident event. A separation agreement, it is not called a divorce agreement because parties cannot divorce themselves in Massachusetts, but they can set up the terms of their separation subject to the probate and family court reviewing their agreement and approving it. And we'll talk about that as we go along. Um, but 90% of cases end up in separation agreements. 90% of divorces, I should say, end up with separation agreements, not necessarily because the parties wish to start out that way, but on the day of the final hearing with hopefully some great input from your trial judge, you will then know what the trial judge is uh, suggesting would be a fair and reasonable resolution. So it always is important to be thinking as you are preparing and meeting with your client that if the separation agreement is how we're going to end and 90% of them will, maybe not till the day of trial, what we need to make sure are in. I also think another very important purpose of a separation agreement in divorce matters is that the parties sit down and learn to talk and to negotiate because separation agreements don't they may end the marriage legally, but they do not end the familial relationship. There are many, many things that are going to continue regarding their children, regarding support, regarding deferred property divisions, uh, that the parties are going to have to continue to work together for many, many more years. It's not a one-time contract, as I said. So I think however we as lawyers can help the parties to learn to negotiate to learn to listen to each other and to compromise as they go forward post-divorce 
it's incredibly important. So David is going to, there's a checklist, which he'll explain in your materials. There's a sample separation agreement in your materials. We're not going to in any way instruct about the law, but just tell you the points that must be touched in a separation agreement. And I will jump right in and interrupt whenever I think uh, a judicial perspective may be helpful. Thank you, David. I think that's excellent. And I hope you do a lot. Um, the, uh, I guess an overriding theme of this is that you have negotiated a great deal for your client. Um, you've done an exceeding, uh, an extensive amount of work, uh, review discovery, and it's really not, uh, you can negate all of that if you don't have a good, thorough, and thoughtful separation agreement. So this is an extraordinarily important part of any divorce practitioner's practice is a really great understanding of separation agreements. Um, you know, it, 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 it could be argued it's the most important thing. Um, from my perspective, um, these are documents that you, uh, you, you want to review very, very carefully from a lot of different perspectives. And that's going to be a theme that comes up. It's you're looking at, does this agreement make sense today? Does this agreement make sense uh, in the future? And so I'm going to ask that everybody try to be a little clairvoyant. And, and to the extent, what, what kind of issues do you see popping up in the future? And Judge Ricky will talk about that a little more. But you'll hear that as we go over these different, chap uh, these different sections. Um, it's also important to know um, that the agreement is not a divorce judgment until a judge finds it, uh, makes a finding that it's fair and reasonable and makes sure there's proper provisions um, as to issues of custody, support and maintenance uh, for alimony and the dissipation of marital property if all those uh, issues are relevant to your case. So um, not until it's been blessed by the court, we say, does the agreement become a divorce judgment. Um, also, to feed off of what Judge Ricky said, um, separation agreements are a document with a lot of names. Um, you know, when I, I recall when I started being a little uh, confused when people use different nomenclature to refer to it. Um, so you'll hear separation agreement, marital separation agreement, divorce agreement, settlement agreement. I personally use separation agreement. I think that's the term that you'll find in, uh, in statutes. But um, if you hear it otherwise, you know, we are talking about that same document. Um, so to the extent everybody has the uh, handouts, um, there is a separation agreement checklist and there's another document entitled agreement. Um, this is uh, samples, they're, they're not to be necessarily utilized without giving it a lot of thought. I've also noticed um, one or two issues that we'll talk about as to the alimony section and the tax section that we'll work through together. But again, it kind of gives us a little bit of a framework. I always feel that what I'm going to do is essentially review the terms of a separation agreement with you um, and kind of go provision by provision. This is something that I think is a great tool and something you're adept at. It makes is a really good client relationship issue. Um, it's that time where you're sitting down to your with your client and making sure they understand not only what the terms say, but all the hard work you did to get these terms in the place that they are. Um, it's a confidence building uh, event where you're sitting down and you're showing the client that you actually know what you're talking about, you know what you've done, and showing how it all works together. So with that said, um, the issue, we start with um, the recitals, and, and I, I want to go over this relatively quickly. Um, the recitals uh, include different provisions, you know, that each party signed it voluntarily, um, that each party had independent legal advice, there's parole evidence paragraphs, there's issues saying that each party has, ha has made full disclosure, um, that each party has had an opportunity to do discovery. 
um, that each party has a right to trial, but despite that right has chose to enter into an agreement instead. Um, oftentimes this provision uh, can include waivers of, the other, of an interest in the other person's estate. Um, there can be there's general releases, uh, waiving the other side of any issues um, that they can now sue upon um, that may exist as of today. Um, there's uh, severability of provisions. So if something is later deemed to be invalid, um, that doesn't make the entire agreement invalid. Um, there's strict performance issues, issues about breach, which are extraordinarily important. That is, mm -hmm. it, you know, when I talk about looking forward to what's, uh, um, to the future, you know, is, these breach provisions talk about in the event of breach, is one party gonna pay the other one's attorney's fees? And, um, you know, so when people refer to these kind of paragraphs as boilerplate, I guess I disagree strongly because an agreement that says uh, may pay attorney's fees versus shall pay attorney fees makes a significant difference, um, despite the fact that there are certain mechanisms within statutes that still could give you attorney fees in the future. So again, are you representing the person who's more likely to be in contempt in the future? So is it the payor of child support? So maybe you wanna say, hey, maybe the breach of a division shouldn't have as, as much teeth as if you're representing the person who, you, who may need protection by filing a complaint for contempt in the future. So you're always walking through the agreement from a very, every time you read an agreement, from the perspective of the person that you're representing um, and uh, how these terms may affect them now and in the future. The most important paragraph though in that recital section, um, in that general provisions of the, the beginning section of the agreement is that, is that section that refers to the merging and surviving of agreements. So um, these are obviously terms of art that, you know, we are assuming that everybody who's participating here is um, on an introductory level. Um, so I apologize if other people are more familiar with this concept. Um, but a judge, uh, a clerk, when you check into court, will ask, does this agreement merge or survive? And what that means is an agreement that merges, merges into the judgment of divorce, meaning the court retains the ability to modify it in the future. Um, if the agreement survives, the agreement survives as an independent contract and, and, like, and will not be modified except the most extreme of circumstances. And uh, we refer to the, those ex extreme uh, circumstances as countervailing equities. This is a phrase that was adopted from a case called Knox v. Remick. Um, that's something you should be very familiar with. Although I would say in 18 years of practice, I've had two cases where I've alleged there's been countervailing equities that should modify a surviving term of an agreement. What's important to know is certain provisions by law have to merge and certain provisions will survive. So property division paragraph. So the, the division of, of, as, of assets is final. Um, so that survives by, by, by operation of law and cannot be modified uh, in the future. I would say absent agreement, although some people have stronger views that it just cannot be modified. Um, Issues pertaining to children have to merge, meaning, and, I, and I'll just simply say are modifiable. The court retains the ability to amend those and modify those in the future. And that's a public policy issue, obviously, where we want to do what's best for children. So should there be more child support? Should there be, um, should there be a change in the parenting plan? These issues have to uh, remain in the control of the court uh, so they can amend them and change them as, as it's in the best interest of the child. So that's a lot of talking, Judge Ricky. Do you have anything to say about that? Yes, time to interrupt. Thank you, David. Um, David said quickly, because he speaks quickly, that what 
particular uh, issues or issues that the, must be contained in a separation agreement for a separation agreement to be approved by the court and incorporated into a judgment. If, well, the agreement must say if there is going to be alimony or if alimony is waived. There must be provisions as to a parenting custodial schedule and child support. There must be provisions as to property division and there must be provisions as to debt division. And then any other types, which David's going to spend a lot of time going over, other provisions, but they must be in there. Even if those are just, we are not seeking alimony, either of us, we are waiving alimony, or instead of child support, there's going to be an alimony payment for some tax reasons, when there used to be tax reasons, but it must be in the agreement. So every agreement has to address spousal support, child support, custodial arrangements, property division, and debt division. They have to be in there. The rest of the, uh, and then there are many variations on those themes. The rest is what David just described as boilerplate. Most agreements come into the probate and family court with probably X pages of boilerplate and then exhibits. One of the exhibits will be the property division. One of the exhibits will be the tax consequences. One of the exhibits will be the parenting and custodial arrangements. One of the exhibits will be child support. But the first X pages, let's say five, eight pages, are boilerplate. Boilerplate is very, very important to sit down and go over with your clients because that is what comes back to the court after in a modification or in a contempt. It's usually boilerplate and we just call it boilerplate because there are so many similarities, but you should define it. I see oftentimes where the wrong pronoun, it would be a him versus a her where it should have been one or the other. So read your boilerplate if you're picking it up off of just some forms you already have. But the boilerplate must be explained to your clients. Besides the very technical merging and surviving that David was just describing, if there are waivers of discovery, you're going to, let's say you waive future discovery and then uh, the husband's going to keep his retirement plan and the wife waives all of her right title and interest. When you are in front of the judge seeking to have that separation agreement approved, most judges are going to say, ma'am, what did you waive? You waived? Well, I don't know. I didn't do discovery. He can just keep it. You can't waive something you don't know. Mm -hmm. So your client has to know and understand what they are waiving. So please be very careful about these boilerplate um, what I call the boilerplate sections being the waivers of discovery, waivers of disclosure, uh, the breach and the contempt, who pays counsel fees if there is a breach, counsel fees at whose rate, if husband's hourly rate is $400 an hour and wife's hourly counsel's rate is $600 an hour and husband is found in contempt for not paying uh, alimony, for example, or wife is found in contempt, they did not bargain with that other attorney to pay that higher rate. So I think it has to say reasonable and just be careful that you all sit down and talk about those things which seem so far down the pike, but believe me, they come back into the court. And what we're trying to do is have your client have an agreement where they never have to walk back into probate and family court again, except if they have been able to modify something just to have the modification approved. Um, the incorporation, Merging and surviving, David explained very well, but it's pretty complex. 
you're going to bring your separation agreement into the court. You're going to bring your financial statements into the court. You're going to bring your child support guidelines worksheets into the court. You're going to file it. You're going to get a hearing date. The court is then going to bring everybody up, read the agreement, review the financial statements, hopefully not ask too many questions because you've done such a fabulous separation agreement. But then the court is going to have to incorporate that separation agreement into a judgment. What the separation agreement is, is just like the judge wrote it out. The parties shall have shared physical custody. The parties shall have shared uh, legal custody. They will, uh, this is the parenting schedule that they are going to uh, use for their sharing with the children. The court then has to determine, it's just like the court wrote it. The separation agreement is just like the court wrote it. So the court has to incorporate it in, and then they determine which provisions merge, as David was saying, being modifiable by the parties or by the court, or which provisions survive, meaning not modifiable. Now, property division is a one and done anyway, so I think that pretty much survives even without putting that language in, David. But many people put in surviving uh, language regarding the property division and regarding spousal support. Again, can't do it, can't survive any provisions regarding the children because the children's best interests have to prevail and the court has to oversee what's best for the children. Sometimes parents can't make the best decisions for their children, but it's always going to be incorporated into a judgment. The court has to approve it. The court has to make sure that there was full disclosure and everybody understood what they were either waiving or accepting. So that's back to you, David. The, the language about the merging and surviving, um, a sample of that is on page, uh, paragraph nine of the agreement we provided. Um, I guess a question for you, Judge Ricky, I, and honestly, uh, it's always an interesting question that I have. Um, the agreement typically will survive in its entirety, except for those provisions that merge. And then you identify very specifically what provisions merge. Other people in their practice, they say the agreement merges in its entirety, except for those provisions that survive. And then they identify the property division or let's say issues related to uh, tax or issues related to life insurance, let's just say, just to make stuff up, um, that they'll survive. Um, do you see it, do you, uh, as a practitioner's point, do you think there's a, uh, a one way that you prefer or think is the better practice? I think most judges prefer that the entire agreement merge and then particularly pick the non-modifiable ones because if it were not a separation agreement and it were a trial and a judgment, the entire judgment would always be modifiable slash merge, right? You could always come back except for property division. So I think that more courts prefer the entire agreement to merge into the judgment of divorce and to cherry pick out the surviving, which I know is opposite from what you just told me you did, cherry pick out the surviving clauses or provisions. Right. Because oh, you, don't, you don't want to limit persons, the court does not want to limit persons access to justice. And we don't always know what advice that, we don't know the competency level necessarily of how that boilerplate was explained those surviving provisions were explained, and you always hate for persons not to be able to come back to correct what needs to be corrected or modify and change what needs to be corrected 
because of what happened five years ago that somebody didn't understand when they read boilerplate or read a tax provision. And I guess you know, we do this every day. We use these terms every day as lawyers. We cannot expect that the public understands as we do. So I think judges are more comfortable with agreements that merge and then cherry pick out the surviving provisions. And, and I, I've even seen several judges who will actually go over these provisions uh, within their colloquy when they're speaking to the litigants, um, even when they're represented to explain the significance of the merging and surviving concepts. Um, from my different perspective, and, and, and then we can move on, um, you know, if you have a very important provision and you've made the entire agreement merge, but for those, I, those sections you identify, mm -hmm. make sure those important provisions that you do not want to change are in that surviving section. Mm -hmm. um, I can think of uh, cases, for example, where maybe there's an arrearage at the time of divorce, meaning one party has to uh, owes a large lump sum of child support. Um, you know, common wisdom would say, hey, let's put that, that language within the child support section of an agreement. But in fact, if you don't want that to be modified, saying, hey, you owe $10,000 as of today, you know, if you're drafting on behalf of the person who owes the $10,000, you want that provision to be in a surviving section of the agreement so that the other party can't come back in the future and allege there's been some sort of substantial change in circumstance that would allow them to modify that, yeah, that obligation. Yes. Yes. Um, but again, I, I think Judge Ricky and I have, are fighting our urges to uh, get deeper into some of these topics. So let's move on. And to the extent we have to circle back, um, we, we can do that if we have additional time. Um, what are the more detailed provisions of a separation agreement is what I, what I always label it as the uh, custody parenting plan paragraph. Um, obviously, the, these, agreement, these parts of the agreement only apply where children are involved, obviously. Um, but they should touch on certain pieces and pieces that you should consider very, very carefully. Um, the issue of legal custody is, is spelled out in uh, Mass two, uh, 208, Section 31, if you want more information. Um, but an agree the agreement should identify which of the parents, if, not both, if it's one party has legal custody or if it's a shared legal custody situation. Um, essentially, very, very quickly, what that means is who makes the major decision for the child um, as to the issues of health, religion, and education. Um, but, you, but because you're drafting your own agreement and the court's not doing it, you have the ability to kind of decide the details of these. Mm -hmm. So rather than rely on the statute, get more into, you have the ability and it may be wise to get more into certain decisions and how they're going to be made um, with specificity. If there are parties who have a, a hard time uh, just making decisions together, you know, the more detail can be better. More detail can be worse. And again, that's why you need to look at it from a specific case-by-case -case, uh, point of view. The um, other issues that kind of relate to legal custody, I would say, is I always identify, you know, each party shall have access to educational or medical records for the child. Um, of course, like anything we say today, there are going to be examples where maybe you don't want that. Maybe that's not appropriate. Um, but typically, I'd say more often than not, you're going to have a provision. It's helpful for both of the parties to have that right. Um, I usually put in information um, about uh, certain religious issues, if that's important to the parties. You know, do the parties uh, value certain religious holidays? Uh, are these really, uh, or the ability to go to church on Sundays? Is it offensive to one party or is it something that the other party really wants to happen? So these are those kind of issues that you can spell out and resolve if you're anticipating them being an issue in the future. 
Um, a lot of detail also will come in into this uh, discussion of physical custody or really what I call parenting plans. Um, you know, in, in most of my cases, I, I try to identify it as uh, a parenting plan and break out the very details that each party is going to be with the children and how that's going to work. Um, even in the best cases, even in the cases where everybody's getting along and holding their hands to the divorce, um, I like to have, you know, if the parties cannot, you know, the parties shall, you know, essentially follow a parenting plan that they believe to be in the best interest in the children. However, to the extent that they do not agree, this shall be the, the fallback plan. Um, because you never know how people are going to change over time, where conflict's going to come, and you don't want to uh, essentially assume that the party's goodwill's, goodwill to each other is going to continue um, ad infinitum. Um, issues to include, just very briefly, uh, you know, who the children are with on a regular schedule, on their weekends, on holidays, vacations, birthdays. Um, in addition, you, you know, what happens when the kids are in school versus not in school? An example of that is, you know, the, uh, the father shall drop off the children at school on Mondays. Well, what if schools doesn't happen that Monday? You know, what, what is the drop off time? And does he have them for the entirety of the day? So is it three o'clock until uh, and drop off at the, at the other parents? Or is it 9 a.m.? You know, these are the kind of issues that you want to include. And, I, and also, who's picking them up and dropping them off? You know, these kind of details are, as Judge Ricky said, will really help when, when you're looking to the future, will really help uh, minimize conflict. The, um, in, in a shared custody situation, mean, uh, essentially meaning that each party has a child for the, the child or children for approximately equal time, um, you want to spell out those transitions and how that would work. And there's, a, there's as many different uh, variations on how this works um, as we can think of. Um, I, you know, to the extent that clients can afford it, it's always nice to have maybe child-related experts involved in this and helping them come to a parenting plan. But then again, you know, Judge Ricky and I have seen so many of these and so will, will you, that maybe you give them a, a couple options of things that might work for their family and, and they work it out together. Um, I always say parenting plans aren't law. Parenting plans are facts. And, um, you know, while I can come in and argue for a client and go in front of a judge on a temporary order on a trial basis, it's really a factual analysis. And the people who can make that determination for their kids or the people most qualified to do it are the parties themselves. And you, you know, I, I have this talk more often than not that wouldn't you want to be the one who's making up the plan for when you have your children and when your children see you um, rather than Judge Ricky or, uh, or a third party who doesn't know your kids and doesn't have the time to dedicate to that parenting plan. Um, other issues that come up and that I would include in this general exhibit um, would be issues about removal, um, you know, that neither party may uh, leave the state with the children or even with, within a certain radius um, without the assent of the other one. Um, the removal statute, section 30 of chapter 208, if, if you want to look at that, um, but that can be a nuanced chapter as well, uh, nuanced uh, paragraph as well. Um, radius restrictions, essentially something that says uh, neither party shall move 20 miles from the other one or, or 15 miles. Those are really heavy issues that lead to conflict and a lot of negotiation. Um, and it's something uh, to see if whether or not that's appropriate for your case. Um, it's very difficult uh, where we live in these small states where uh, maybe moving, if, if you live in Methuen 
and uh, that radius would include a move to New Hampshire. So we need to be very uh, careful about, uh, you know, people and their right to bring children out of state. Um, one issue that's in the news right now is the issue of the non-disparagement clauses, essentially that neither party shall disparage uh, the other in the presence of the child. Um, so essentially you can't talk bad about the other one. That came up in a case that just came out last week, I think it's called Shack v. Shack, um, essentially saying that the court cannot issue these non-disparagement clauses. Uh, my, my early reading of it, um, my takeaway is that doesn't mean the parties can't. That means, doesn't mean you can't put it in a separation agreement still um, if parties agree to, agree to be bound by it. Um, so that's something too in, in some of these high conflict divorces that we all see or you will see. Where also where parties can afford it and maybe, maybe it's even more cost effective in any scenario is some agreements will have provisions as to parent coordinators. Um, PCs um, will be essentially that person that the parties go to when they have conflict regarding a child-related issue. Um, these are provisions that are great to put in your agreement if it's appropriate for your client. And I always specify that the, the PC can make a binding decision, uh, temporarily binding decision as to, the, um, as to the parenting plan, but they're not to weigh in on financial issues such as child support. And then I say, if either party disagrees with the, with the recommendation, let's say, of the parenting coordinator, then they can then submit the issue to the court. Um, again, that's looking down the road. It's, it's what happens when the parenting coordinator says something we don't like, what's that next step? And that's an analysis you wanna really do on every single provision. Um, Jadriki, before I move on out of parenting plans, are there things you wanna talk about? Yes, please, may I? Yes. Um, legal custody is a very, very broad brush. Legal custody is who makes decisions as to education, medical, religious upbringing, et cetera. The courts generally uh, suggest and prefer that the parties share legal custody because it's important for the children to know that both parents have some decision-making. It is rare cases where parties agree that one has sole legal custody and makes all the decisions. So, I have not seen many separation agreements that grant one parent sole legal custody. Generally, they say they will share legal custody or have joint legal custody. That really needs time spent in negotiation as to what decisions they will be. If one of the parents has some specific training in medicine or has always taken the children for medical appointments or the children have unique medical or educational needs. They may want to designate that they have shared legal custody, but if they cannot agree that the father makes the medical decisions, they have shared legal custody, but if they cannot agree, agree the mother makes the educational decisions, whatever it would be. You can carve those provisions out and define them, and that's really important to do, define them for your particular family. I, in my mediation world, can, you cannot tell you the hours that is spent on parenting schedules because nothing should be more important, right? Property division is a one-time thing. Income is income and support is going to be based upon that. What you do need to spend the time on, of course, is the parenting schedule and parenting plan and custodial designations as, as David was just describing them. How far are the parties going to live apart? this radius, they can't move within 20 miles of each other. Let's say that they have shared physical or shared residential and it's 
two and a half days, two and a half days, or one week, one week, whatever it is, but they live in different towns. The towns are going to want to know which parent is the residential parent for signing them up for school because if they need special ed or whatever they need, the school systems need to know which school is going to be providing it. So if they're going to have a 50-50 or whatever it is, you're going to probably, it would be safer to designate which parent is the residential parent, not because they have more parenting time, but because the school system needs to, the kids need to know and the school system needs to be determined and agreed by the parents. It's not likely that most families can continue and to afford to live in the same town, in the same place. The marital residence may have to be sold. The parents might have to go find smaller homes in different areas or move into apartments for a temporary basis, whatever it is. So the residential piece for the kids is really important as to what is determined to be the legal residence for the kids. Another place that I see lots of problems coming back into the courtroom is the pickup and delivery places because one parent, they, let's say they live easily, you can live two towns apart. It can be 10 miles apart and it can be an hour and 15 minutes on a Friday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon to exchange. If you have Cape Cod, if you have inner city Boston, whatever it is. So if you have, if you have a Wednesday night, five to eight o'clock time that one parent has, you have to tack on the driving time. So I think you need, some parents expect the other parents going to do all the driving. The kids are at my house, you come to my house, this is where we start, this is where we end. I think you need to spend the, and I don't have a preference, however it is, but I think it needs to necessarily be defined who picks up, who delivers. Or is there a meeting place? Can they meet halfway? Can they meet at the grandparents' house? Can they meet somewhere? That comes back a lot. Mm-hmm. Defining, and this probably will be more in David's, uh, David's presentation about support, but who chooses the extracurricular activities and how many extracurricular activities there are? David, how much time do you spend on extracurricular activities? It takes up so much courtroom time yeah. in a trial or in a contempt or in a modification because some parents think the children need 10 extras extracurricular activities, and some think they need to do more schoolwork and less extracurricular. So just as sometimes we say one per season per parent, per child, because you have no parenting time then. You're just driving your kids around to extracurricular activities. So that needs to be defined. Sorry, that's my landline. I apologize. Um, So sorry. So I think a number of extracurricular activities or who chooses them per season or who chooses them per age level of the children is very, very important to add in as well. Shared physical custody, if we're still going to use the custody words and the court does not like to, they prefer parenting schedules, parenting plans, but if you're still going to use those, It does not, shared parenting doesn't mean 50-50. You don't have to count three and a half days, how many waking hours, how many asleep hours. That does not matter to kids and that does not matter to the court at all. You can have a shared parenting, physical custody arrangement and it can be three, four. It can be, you know, whatever. It can be whatever is best for the kids and that the parents can, um, can learn to live with and work in. Also, I think a big, a very important 
provision to spend time when you're negotiating is on medical treatment. Some parents do not believe that children should go to therapy. Some parents believe children should go to therapy all the time. Some parents don't believe in braces. Some parents do believe that every child needs braces. Those types of decision-making are what comes back to court that I hope that you'll spend the time when you're negotiating your agreements to do. Very few courts are going to accept in 2020 that one parent has custody and the other parent has reasonable visits upon reasonable notice. Those were before 20 years ago. That's what every agreement said, that one parent has reasonable. So you would say, okay, ma'am, you have physical custody. What do you think is reasonable for his visits? And she would say what you say. And he would say, no, 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 I want to. So they're standing in front of you and they already cannot agree at the time the court is approving what they think is a reasonable parenting time for the other parent and what reasonable notice is. So I think that that's really important that that not be in there, that you spend the time now because it's gonna to have to be spent to sit down and work out a schedule with the caveat and the catch-all that the parents can always agree to more if they choose to do it or can modify it if they need to do it. But you've got to spend the time on this parenting. It's the most important thing that the court will spend the time reviewing when they make a finding as to the uh, fairness and reasonableness of the agreement. Thanks, David. Perfect, yeah, we're cruising along uh, very, very slowly, so not cruising at all. But um, there are two, very, two quick questions that I think I can answer right now that pertain to child-related issues. Um, you know, I we can answer them quickly, so I think uh, they're good to take now. One of them says, if um, a child support provision states that it shall not be merged into the judgment of divorce, is this void? Um, I would say that the uh, and um, the courts retains the ability to modify it. Um, so the provision itself, the for example, if it says somebody's paying X amount of money. I wouldn't say that that portion of it's void, but the provision that says that it's not to be, uh, that it's not merged and survives would not be uh, respected by the court. What would you say, Judge Ricky? Yes, I agree. Um, the, the other issue talks about um, where there's two children. It, can you, can each party have custody of one of the children? Um, the, the legal answer is yes, you can. The practical answer, it would be highly disfavored by the court and there would have to be um, a good and compelling reason to do that, that I would probably wouldn't do without, you know, some sort of involvement with a, a child therapist or somebody family therapist, um, because you know, that's just a very unusual arrangement uh, that, that we do not see very often. But I don't think it's, I don't think that the court would summarily dismiss it. They would want no. to ask the reasons for it. Right. Some parents have special uh, abilities that can work with a child that might have some special needs or medical needs or the time or the expertise to be able to do that. Some siblings do better apart. Mm -hmm. You know, we just, we, we tend to lump everybody in that a three-year-old is going to have the same parenting time as a 12-year-old when it must be very difficult to be a parent with kids of those disparate ages and try to keep everybody. So I don't, sure. It's not a no. It's not a no by no. any means, but there would have to be some explanation. I, I absolutely agree. Um, all right. So uh, briefly, uh, the child support section, we'll move on to there quickly. Um, again, something you fought very hard about and negotiated to come up with this figure. Um, so you would want to make sure that's clean. 
Um, obviously, the amount of child support, when it's to be paid, and how it's to be paid is the primary issues there. Um, so how, how it can be paid is always um, one that, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people do not include in the agreement, but should. Is this a check being sent in the mail, which to me in this day and age is unnecessary? Is it a direct deposit from one account to the other? Is it, a, is it through wage assignment to the Department of Revenue? These are, these are the issues that you, you want to kind of flag on uh, when drafting a paragraph such as this. You also want to discuss whether or not the amount of support is consistent with the Massachusetts Child Support Guidelines. And if it's not, maybe you explain why there's been a deviation from, the, from what the guidelines amount would be. Um, you should include emancipation language. Essentially, when does this obligation to pay child support cease? Um, and for information on that, you can go to 208 section 28. Um, as Judge Ricky already pointed out, um, I usually include issues about extracurricular expenses um, in this uh, paragraph. And so that's gonna be one, how, what, how are extracurricular activity expenses for the children chosen? Um, you know, are they jointly? They're, do they need to have written assent prior to do it? Does that assent need to be reasonable? Or, or that uh, a fail, a refusal to give assent need to be reasonable? Um, and what sort of uh, extracurricular expenses can we agree to now? So, you know, a lot of times when I'm representing the person who uh, likely will have the children more often, I like to say, you know, the kids are currently in soccer. And let's I agree that the party shall have to agree upon future extracurricular activities. But we all agree right now that the kids are going to be playing soccer for the next year until this session ends. Um, I like that because it kind of solidifies the status quo and shows what those expenses were beforehand. These are tough terms to negotiate because you've just fought over how much child support one person's going to pay. And when I say fought, I, I, you know, obviously sometimes this is more peaceful than others and I hope there's, it's not actually fighting. But, you know, the issue is, you know, now that, that you've agreed that you're going to pay $250 a week, now you're taking on this addition, you may be taking on an additional expense to pay extracurricular expenses. Um, I would say more often than not, courts do, uh, will include provisions like this, provided they're reasonable and they're specific to the facts of the case. Um, lastly, you know, uh, particularly in my practice, income can be variable. So if somebody is drawing a salary of $200,000 a year, uh, base pay of $200,000 a year, but has in bonus incentives. How are you going to consider that going forward? How are you, if they get a bonus of up to twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year, how do we include that in some sort of calculation of child support? Is it one, included uh, assuming that the person's going to get it and we have a set number? Or two, is it a second look kind of paragraph where you say, if and when this money comes in, this percentage is going to be paid to the recipient spouse by way of child support. And I give those as two examples, but they're not the only examples. The way to get on the bonus, David, if I can just comment. Oh, some, pers some persons that receive additional above their base compensation as bonus or commissions or whatever it would be, do not object to a percentage going into an account for extracurricular activities. Mm -hmm. Do not object to a certain percentage going into college funds they they object perhaps to the other parent getting more cash all the time or having but they don't object to it going to the children's good and that may be a good way to fund the extracurriculars it is amazing to me how extracurriculars add up in some families they think forty thousand dollars 
for children's extracurriculars a year is fair and normal for their children. And it may be for what their incomes are. In others, they can barely pay the little league in the town. So we try to find what, whatever monies we can that can go to the children. And I think that the bonuses and the commissions or all the creative compensation that people receive and are paid now may be a place where you can fund those and it's helpful for both sides. It's helpful for mom, the recipient of the child support and it's helpful um, for the mom or dad that is the payer of the child support. Mm -hmm. Please familiarize yourself with the child support guidelines. You're going to need to bring child support guidelines into uh, worksheets into court. They uh, differ the math calculations, which are a program so you don't have to do the math are based upon the kids having a 50-50 parenting schedule versus a two-thirds, one-third parenting schedule, and whether the kids are under 18 or over 18. So please familiarize yourself with those. If there's going to be a deviation from the child support guidelines, which David just said, the court has to make findings as to why they are not applying the child support guidelines and why they have uh, deviated or why the parties have deviated. So bringing in some proposed findings for the reasons for the deviation or putting that into the agreement uh, is very, very helpful to the court because that is required. Um, also things, funding for kids, camps come up all the time, tutors come up all the time, car payments come up all the time, and cell phone payments come up all the time, and who pays that? Does the recipient of child support expected to pay that from child support, or do those go into extracurriculars? So the more you can define, the more you can help your clients go forward and not have to come back to you anymore. Absolutely. That's it on support. Yeah. Camp, camps are extraordinarily expensive. Um, daycare, is that being included within the child support guidelines or is that being included independently? We're just flagging these issues because we're already at 1247 and so we, we're gonna uh, get moving along. Um, alimony is a provision uh, that obviously needs a lot of consideration. Unfortunately, the, the version provided by the, uh, of the agreement doesn't have specific language on that. Um, fortunately, uh, because the law on that has changed considerably, um, one as a result of the Alimony Reform Act uh, in 2013, and also because of the, ch the change, the um, recent change to tax laws, uh, where we no longer have the deductibility of alimony for uh, the recipient, uh, for the payor, excuse me, no deductibility of alimony for the payor. So um, that's something that is an entire course within itself, um, but you know, issues to consider there is, you know, the amounts, the uh, frequency of payment um, of alimony. Um, the, and most importantly, I would say is the duration of alimony and certain termination factors. When is alimony going to end? Um, more often than the statute would say that it's upon the death of either party, upon uh, the remarriage of the recipient or, or uh, the retirement, um, which is defined by statute. Um, or the durational uh, guidelines that are spelled out by the statute as well. Durational guidelines are a percentage of the length of the marriage um, and, and also can, of course, within itself. Um, also, is there a waiver of alimony? Is that the, are neither party going to seek alimony from the other in the future? And if there is a waiver, um, it is a waiver of, of uh, past, present, and future alimony and when going back to the merging and surviving language, that provision needs to survive. 
Um, so otherwise, an alimony provision where, where your party is paying support can either merge or survive, but most typically you would say that these provisions would merge. Um, so again, Judge Ricky, any, obviously there's a ton to say on that, but do you have anything more you'd like no, to add? No, just the cohabitation under the statute might Thanks. also be a modifying event. Nope, right. that's it. Keep yeah, going. Co cohabitation under the statute, uh, which you can look up, um, is it can terminate. It can also suspend or be grounds for modification of the alimony. So that's usually the provision that you'll see and that you could use. Um, issues of health insurance. Um, the real issue of health insurance is one, who is maintaining it for the benefit of the children? And is somebody maintaining it for the, uh, the other spouse going uh, post-divorce? Um, key words to consider here is, you know, make sure that it's provided that the that the, uh, the recipient of the insurance, the person being covered is eligible. Um, I'm very, I'm always very careful to say so long as it's provided by a person's employer, meaning it's available to them through their employer. And then I also address issues such as um, who's to pay if there's an additional expense to main maintain the policy post-divorce. So, um, for example, it's uh, X amount of money to maintain the policy, but if the other spouse is going to be on, then it's this additional amount. Is that additional amount being covered by the um, the, the person maintaining the policy or the or the beneficiaries of the policy? Of course, you want to before you enter into any of these agreements, make sure that um, you understand what the eligibility of the uh, health insurance is going to be post divorce. Can your can your client or can the other side? continue to stay on post-divorce. And that's a question that can be asked through, uh, through the employer. Um, also, we have um, uninsured medical expenses. Um, essentially, those are you know, the co-pays, those things not covered by the insurance. Um, how are those gonna be paid where there's children involved? Um, in, the statute says it, where one person's receiving child support from the other, that they're gonna pay the first 250 per year um, and then the uh, remaining amounts to be divided. Other times we write that those expenses will just simply be divided 50-50. And um, are we including all extra uh, uninsured medical expenses or are we um, only doing those that are reasonably necessary for elective surgeries? You know, what is the requirement to do that? So it's really, again, looking in a lot of detail about what could come up and how it could come up. What I didn't say is also when you're maintaining health insurance for the children, when does that obligation to maintain health insurance stop? And that's aligned with the, uh, typically aligned with the emancipation statute, um, which is section 28. Judge Ricky, that was fast. Okay. But Health insurance is so important. It comes back because it is one of the clauses in a separation agreement that the parties are not entirely able to control. Generally, medical insurance is provided by one of the spouse's employers. And generally, they, it is not, if it's self-insured at the date of divorce, the non-employed spouse is going to be terminated from it. And the spouse cannot keep them on no matter what. So when David says rightfully that you have to go if you represent the employed spouse and find out how long it's going to continue, one is, the wife who carries the family plan medical insurance asks her employer and her employer gives her this information, but then it's really the insurer and the insurers will insure the fewest people 
for the same cost that they possibly can. It's not cost effective for them to keep everybody on, whether they're divorced or not. The least people they have to pay benefits out for, the more it helps the insurer. So this is one area that you see coming back to court, sadly, not because lawyers or parties didn't do their homework, but because employers have to change it or are required to change it. They don't have the same plan in 36 months that they had at the divorce. They can't afford that plan anymore. Also because the insurer, whoever it is, Blue Cross, whatever, Harvard Pilgrim, has changed it. So spend the time on this. I cannot tell you how many times I've said, ma'am, you provide the medical insurance. How long can your husband stay on after divorce? Well, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you do? <laughs> that is so important. When you first meet with your clients at the very initial meeting, those conversations about medical insurance and exchanging the eligibility books should start then. This comes back so often. De some definitions of is a deductible because some people have deductibles that cost you know, more than their premiums, for goodness sake, right? They have lower premiums, but they have a high deductible or their employer has purchased a, a product with a high deductible. Is that a copay? Is that part of the 250? The deductibles can be $5,000 a year. So you have to define how they divide or who pays the deductible for the family if they're all on that one plan. Is it the same as a copay or is it separate and one party pays it? Does dental expenses include orthodontia? Do eye expenses include contact lenses for the kids? These come back and they're very, very, well, contact lenses hopefully aren't as expensive as they used to be, but orthodontia is still very, very expensive. I think you need to spend the time doing that. These are the clauses in the medical insurance that are gonna come back over and over. And a lot of it is out of their control. It changes, but a lot of it is in their control. So the more time you spend trying to to get it right, the more you're helping your clients. That's it. Um, college expenses when our children are involved. Um, this is a this is a big issue too that comes back, and um, how you deal with it um, can vary from one just addressing it in the future to two having very specific provisions on how it's going to happen. Um, important provisions to consider in this are you know how is the decision for the child going to college going to be decided. Um, and, and those sort of factors. Um, obviously, I, if I'm being expected to pay it, I would, I would insist uh, or contribute towards it. I would uh, insist on you know, that decision being made jointly. Um, the definition of what is a college expense is something to really consider every time you write in. Is, are, are you writing a very broad definition that um, includes all sort of aspects of the child's expenses when he or she is in college? Or is it a very narrow expense, limited to perhaps uh, tuition, room, and board? Um, the child support guidelines for the first time in my practice ha uh, have identified a, uh, a cap, essentially, saying that absent, uh, I don't know the exact phraseology, but essentially absent in a, a, a proven ability to pay, uh, neither party shall be obligated to pay more than 50% of the, the in-state tuition costs for UMass Amherst, um, which is, again, they go and define that, and that you should look into that. So how much, how much are you willing to have your client be committed to pay? Um, and and that's, that, that's something you need to do on a case-by-case -case basis. Also, have the parties, do they have 529 accounts or other accounts set up for the children before divorce? And what happens to those accounts uh, that when they put money aside after divorce? Um, and if there is a 529 account that's in existence at the time of divorce, 
um, one party will continue to manage that, but perhaps the other party shall continue to have access to those statements or no money can be withdrawn without the written assent of both of them. Those are the kind of things you think about depending upon um, the case. Judge Ricky, I understand uh, there's more, but what would you like to add on that? I'd like to add that you don't start the party. There needs to be language that the parties don't start talking about who pays for college and what their con financial contributions have to be after the kids have already applied. Because the kids get in, they're in the $77,000 school, which seems to be the new private number this year of what private colleges are costing. And it is August or July and everybody's in front of the court on a contempt and somebody says, well, who's going to tell our daughter who worked so, so hard to get into this very prestigious school, which I'm sure the child did, that she can't go. Should I tell her her father's not going to pay or should I tell her her mother's not going to contribute? Don't, you know, to get an agreement signed, let's not rush it and be sloppy about it. Let's spend the time that kids start applying in junior year. I think that by November or December of junior year, it would be helpful if there was provisions in a separation agreement that the parties sit down and say, we can't afford, we've got three kids. I've remarried and I have two more kids. She's remarried and has, you know, whatever has happened in those years from when you sign the separation agreement until junior year of high school, it's too late then to say, you, we can only contribute what UMass is, which is $33,000 or whatever. I think that the parents have to have a united front to saying, we will only be, I'm sorry, just like you might in an intact family. I'm sorry, we can't afford for you to go to a $77,000 a year school. You have to go to a school or get scholarships and grants, whatever. But I think there needs to be a time, David, put into the agreements as to when the parents sit down and have this conversation with the child so that the child's expectations are the, coming, are the same coming from both parents. Mm -hmm. So. Um, life insurance provisions. Um, so life insurance is used in divorce cases to secure payments. And that can be an obligation to pay child support. It could be an obligation to pay alimony. Or some agreements even have lump sum payments that are paid over time that you would want to secure uh, if the person was later unable to make that payment. Um, things to consider with a life insurance uh, uh, paragraph are obviously... What is the purpose of the agreement? When does the obligation of the life insurance? What when does the obligation to maintain the life insurance cease? Um, what is the amount of the death benefit of the life insurance? Um, how is the uh, how what's going to happen to the proceeds upon uh, if if upon death if it's in place? Does it go in trust? Does it go to the benefit of the surviving spouse for the benefit of the children? Um, how is that all going to be arranged? And that can be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, a lot of agreements now include periodic reductions over time. So every year, perhaps, the obligation shall be reduced by $50,000 or some set amount of money um, to kind of limit that uh, obligation and that weight upon the person maintaining the policy. Um, what does the, uh, the, the other spouse write to look at if these policies are still in place? Do they have access to uh, proof? upon an annual basis, for example. And what happens if the, the policy is not in place at the time that it would be needed? Um, oftentimes you'll see what's, uh, uh, that will include language about a creditor's claim um, in the, that against the uh, decedent's estate. Um, the only one point I wanna make on this is that both in my 
uh, practice, I always find that both parties should have an obligation to maintain uh, life insurance. And oftentimes people only look at it as saying, hey, this person has this child support obligation that we need to secure. Well, the, the recipient of child support is providing extremely valuable and expensive services in, in being with the kids more often. And what is the replacement value of that person no longer being there? And so, you know, oftentimes where children are involved, um, I, I think it's highly appropriate for both parties to be obligated to maintain life insurance. Agreed. Tax issues. Oh, I'm sorry, Judge Ricky. No, I was just going to say, do you think we can go on to property division and yeah. then go back time-wise? I think, I think, I think that's a great idea. Okay. So the division of assets, um, we're, we're, there's several different issues you should touch upon, and they're all contained within the uh, separation agreement checklist. Um, again, we're looking to the future and what problems are going to come up. And perhaps the best example of that is how you deal with real estate, particularly the marital, prop, uh, the marital home, which is most common in a separation agreement. Is one party going to maintain the home post-divorce? Is the home or is the home going to be sold? Um, you know, what is going to happen with this property? And oftentimes you'll see these provisions where um, one party is to maintain, uh, continue to live in a home. But people forget to include the fact that there's a mortgage that exists and both parties' names are on the mortgage. And for some time, I've not known mortgage companies to willingly remove a party's name without a proper refinancing of that mortgage. So once you have, so addressing the fact that the party who's keeping it must refinance the home within a date certain. If that party is unable to refinance the home, then what? Um, and you know, and oftentimes it maybe the example to, to that, maybe the answer to that is then within X amount of time, if they're unable to maintain, uh, obtain a refinance, then the home needs to be sold. But it's always looking down the road and what if, what if, and what happens next? Mm -hmm. um, I like to include very specific, if the property is going to be sold, I like to include very specific language about this is the broker we're going to use. This is, you know, uh, oftentimes I've seen people say, if a, if a offer comes within a certain range or the, the, the broker believes the offer to be reasonable, we'll accept that number. Um, you know, those are the kind of things you want to think about. Who retains use and occupancy of a property? Who gets to stay in it? Who's maintaining the expenses going forward? So who's paying the mortgage payment? Who's paying the taxes? Um, if it's that, if the property is going to be sold, how is that going to be handled versus if the person is going to stay in the home, you know, are they going to be responsible and what is their obligation to remove the other one's name from those liabilities? Um, also the issue of capital gains if the property is going to be sold. Uh, again, taxes are something, once you've read the agreement once, read the agreement twice, looking at what are the tax issues that I've mixed here, missed here, because that's to me what makes the difference between a good lawyer and a great lawyer is finding that second layer that maybe the other lawyer has overlooked. If one of the part, I'm sorry, done, David. Yes. Okay. If one of the parties is going to stay in the marital residence and have use and occupancy, not ownership, it's going to be sold down the road. So somebody's in tenth grade and they're going to allow dad to stay in the stay in the house until high school graduation so that the child can stay in the same high school, graduate in the same high school, be there with his or her friends, who maintains the expenses? Not just paying the utilities, not just paying the mortgage, not just paying the real estate taxes. Those are important. But you know the refrigerator is going to go, the hot water heater is going to go, the roof is going to go, and the person staying in the house is saying, I didn't have anything to do with that. The roof was just 17 years old or however long the roof lasts and it's time to fix that. So often parties put in that for all uh, necessary repairs and maintenance, 
over $500 that they'll share it, but if it's under $500 or if it's just cosmetic, that can, you know, that word cosmetic can make people crazy, can make judges crazy because somebody thinks you get to do a whole stone wall, which is $20,000 or put in a pool. And somebody thinks it's just basic painting. But if somebody, if you're going to continue to hold property together, which the court would like parties not to do, they would like a clean division at the time of the divorce. But if parties are going to continue to hold property together, then we've got to spend the time to sit down and define who maintains it, who hires the repair persons, who chooses them, and who pays them until the house is sold. And when do they list it? If it's gone, if you anticipate that high school graduation is in June 2022, and when do you start listing the house? Do you list it in March? So you've got to get going so that it sells and somebody doesn't go through, the other party doesn't have to wait another year or so to get the to get their sale proceeds. That's an excellent point. Um, one other thing on, on real estate, you know, there's not only the marital home, there can be vacation homes, rental properties. Um, how are those assets, how they're gonna be transferred, the details of, you know, is, you know, who's preparing the deed, um, who's gonna pay the recording fees. Um, oftentimes we see properties held by realty trusts. Um, if that's the case, you know, who's the, how do you uh, write it in a way that's compelling someone who's not subject to this agreement to transfer that property? So these are all things you need to consider. Um, other topics to be included in property division are tangible personal property, that's pots and pans and everything else. Um, you know, absent the most expensive items of jewelry or art or whatever it is, you know, these are, these are areas that people spend an enormous amount of money on legal fees that they should not. Um, I am an, I'm a big fan of identifying um, a process of how they're going to be selected, be it almost like the NFL draft of, of assets or um, where it's more, where there's more conflict appointing somebody as a, a special master slash arbitrator who has binding authority to say where everything goes. So essentially do not hold up a, an agreement on an entire case where there's a lot more issues going on because we can't decide who gets the China or who's going to pay to photocopy uh, the wedding photos, um, you know, or the children's photos, hopefully, um, post-divorce. Um, vehicles. Um, vehicles, again, very briefly, is just making sure that, you know, is, are they titled in joint names? And if they're titled in joint names, you know, who's going to be responsible for removing that person's name if one party's going to be retaining it? There's also, you know, who's paying the expenses on it? Who, if it's a lease or if it's got a, it's subject to debt. Who's going to be required to maintain those expenses going forward? Um, Judge Ricky, I'm going to go over some topics relatively quickly, and then maybe you'll circle back with, with your points mm -hmm. on them. Yes. Um, bank accounts, um, retirement accounts, pensions, investment accounts, securities, business interests, trust interests. Um, these, these are huge components to your agreement. For bank accounts, I like to uh, be very specific and identify which bank account. I usually use the last four digits of the, uh, the bank account number so we know with, with extreme specificity the accounts I'm talking about. Um, who's going to retain what account? And if accounts are just going to be divided, then they're divided and what happens to that account going after that? You know, oftentimes it's the easiest step is to close an account. But unless the agreement says it, no one's required to do it. Um, I also like to put in provisions that no one's going to withdraw monies from those accounts following the, the execution of the agreement. 
um, because more than once I've seen um, other people pay their lawyers at the last second and we find out the amount of money in the account was a lot less than should have been there. Um, retirement accounts and pensions, again, require a lot of attention and can be very specific to the uh, retirement vehicle that we're talking about. Um, certain accounts can be divided by, uh, by transfer and other ones require the use of a, a quadro. Um, so it's identifying specifically which accounts require the, can be done by transfer and which ones require the, a, a qualified domestic relations order. Um, if you need a quadro, which again is a, court within its, a course within itself, who is paying that expense to have it drafted? Um, are you identifying the person who's going to do it? And also, how are we addressing any uh, increases or decreases in value post-divorce? So example of retirement accounts gets, uh, goes down $50,000. And if you have a lump sum payment from one spouse to another, you may run into a problem where your client's no longer getting the deal that they thought they were getting. Um, I, I think sometimes working with the, the plan administrator themselves is the best way to do this. I know some um, institutions, particularly Fidelity in a recent case, is very specific about the language they want in order to transfer accounts. Um, so, you know, this is an area where we're talking usually big dollars. This is, you know, I would say people's, their home and their retirement are the biggest assets we see in, in a case. So this requires a tremendous amount of concentration, time and attention. Um, same thing with investment accounts and securities. Um, an issue there that I often see is how are these accounts going to be divided? Oftentimes, the fact that there may be two accounts that appear to be $50,000 each, but what hasn't been considered is that there's embedded ca uh, capital gains within these accounts. So it's paying very close attention to the tax effect of those accounts and how they're going to be divided. Oftentimes, the simplest way is say, each account's gonna be divided in half. Um, we use the phrase in-kind transfers, essentially what I think of as everybody gets the same thing as the other person. So there's an account with two shares of Apple stock, everybody gets one share of Apple stock. Um, you know, those are the kind of things you, you, you need to look into. Judge Ricky, on those topics? I think you covered them well, but the, the qualified domestic relations order is a special order that the court will have to sign before you bring it in, make sure the plan administrator at the uh, at Fidelity or whoever holds those retirement funds has approved it because you're going to come in, the judge is going to sign it, the divorce is going to become final. Then you take the qualified domestic relations order that the court signed back to the employer or Fidelity in David's example. And Fidelity says, we don't, I'm not picking on Fidelity at all. They say, whoever it is, we don't accept it. You've got to go back into court. You've already gone to judgment. There's nothing open as far as the court's concerned. So please make sure you check with the plan administrator at whoever holds they, it, their forms. Their forms that they, that they will only approve. So make sure you've got the right form. The court doesn't care what they sign as long as it gives the other spouse exactly what they're supposed to get. And as long as the plan administrator will be, court's not gonna sit there and write out a qualified domestic relations order. They don't know what the plan administrator is going to request, require. On cars, David, it shouldn't be so hard, but often there's a car loan, so there is no title that can be passed. So if husband's got to give the title to the wife, he can't. He doesn't have it until the, the loan is paid off. She's paying the loan but doesn't have the title. So those are tricky. You've got to find out those and define those as to how and when she gets the title and what his interest is. And if there is a car lease and then there's mileage overage, because that can become thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year if you've exceeded the lease, 
who pays that cars shouldn't be so difficult, but they are so difficult because of loans and encumbrances on them. There, there's three very small sections I just want to talk about uh, before we run out of time. Um, business interests, uh, equity compensation, and liabilities. So if there's a family business, if the parties own an interest in a business, how is that going to, what's going to happen to that? Is one party going to retain it? Is it going to be divided or is the business going to be sold? And um, I find that people get into big trouble on these specific provisions and is an absolutely great time to realize the limits of what you do. And I utilize a corporate attorney, uh, business attorneys for the business to help me draft provisions to make sure um, if, if the business is going to be sold, what's going to happen to the business in the meantime before it's sold? You know, what's, if, if your client doesn't, is the spouse that doesn't have the day-to-day -day interaction with it, how do you know that everything's above board and that's sharing of information, access to records, um, and putting in, and, and corporate attorneys have written very specific limitations on what decisions are allowed to be made and what decisions are not allowed to be made without the other party's assent. Um, equity compensation uh, is, is more and more prevalent. You're gonna see that all the time. And what I mean about that is stock options or restricted stock units. This is so nuanced. Um, you need to really be careful with these provisions and spend a lot of time. It's just not as simple as saying, you know, it, it can be, I, I suppose, but that one party re receives the stock options. You know, we have case law. Uh, there's the Bacanti case, and the Ludwig case that you should really familiarize yourself or must familiarize yourself if you're going to deal with a case where there is uh, stock options uh, uh, or restricted stock units or any other sort of equity compensation. Um, the uh, lastly, liabilities. Um, so how are debts going to be paid? And I feel like people do assets and then <clears throat> and then sk and skip paying attention to the liabilities. Um, and so those are credit cards. You know, if credit cards, uh, there's that saying credit card debt, who's paying it and when does it need to be paid by and how are you indemnifying the other person, if at all, from that expense, if it was incurred by one party. And further, what happens if there's a joint account that somebody continues to use post-divorce? Those are the kind of issues you want to address and consider. Um, if one party has student loans, making sure that there's provisions um, for that, or God forbid there's pending legal action or some sort of outstanding liability, um, essentially you want to make sure if you're not responsible for that, that they are protected. That's something you bargained for and make sure that you've protected yourself um, from an, any liability that your client might have. Judge Ricky. Nope, I think that, that finishes it up. On liabilities, though, many people borrow monies from family members or from institutions to pay their attorney's fees. Is there going to be an equalization of counsel fees? Is everybody responsible for their own counsel fees? Because if somebody is left with a $40,000 liability and the other person has been able to use marital assets to pay their legal fees, then it probably needs to be addressed as a disparate property division. Doesn't mean it can't happen. Nobody says anything has to be 50-50. You can have any division that the parties are comfortable with and that there's a rationale to explain to the court of why it's a disparate property division. But council fees is another huge area that we oh, see. Absolutely, great back. point. Um, I think in general, general, just to wrap this up, um, although there's so much more we could have talked about and maybe this should be a much longer uh, 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 class in the future, but the uh, always bring, try to bring agreements with you to pretrials, to four ways um, so that, you know, cases can be resolved and, you know, people come to resolutions and then get buyer's remorse. And if there's not an agreement there, 
um, you may miss, have missed an opportunity to bring a case to a resolution. Um, I like to write my own agreements. Um, I think it does put you, one, if you get very familiar with uh, aspects of the case that you might not have been thinking about. Um, so I always jump at the opportunity to prepare the agreement if, in any case. Um, and I guess in a lot of ways, uh, this presentation, I feel like what you feel like in court, where you, if you don't have that agreement with you, you're rushing to say, what did I miss? And I kind of feel like that looking over my outline right now that I'm sure we've missed a lot of things. But by bringing that agreement, um, you don't have that panic. And lastly, um, yeah, coming to these agreements are really, really hard. And I would really encourage people to use Judge Ricky and other mediators who do such a good job to help out. Um, because otherwise, you know, these things get out of control. And um, a retired judge is such a great option um, for having the gravitas, particularly in this day and age where we can't get into court as easily um, to bring these cases to a resolution. Because ultimately, that's what we do. We're, we're, not hired, we're not hired to make conflict. We're hired to resolve conflict. And um, we have these great resources like our retired uh, judges who I, I really encourage everybody to use. Thank you. Can I just say on the separation agreement, I think every file should have a boiler, just a draft separation agreement in it so that early on you and your client can start reading it together and talking about the boilerplate so you're not doing it sitting out in the hall or sitting in a little crowded conference room trying to quickly explain merging and surviving. I think you start having the conversation, even if you think it's going to be litigated, you start having it with your client early. Every time you come to court is a potential to settle. If, even if you're there for a motion for temporary orders for support and parenting, the judge might send you out or might send you to probation or family service to try to come up with an agreement. So if you have it there with you, you won't miss anything. You don't want to miss anything because you don't want to feel bad that you missed it. And you also want to make sure what's important to your client to be in that agreement that you two have talked about, not talking about out in the court hall. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, everybody. Be safe. We appreciate you being here. Thank you Stay all. Stay safe.